on Chapel Hill. Yeah. I love y'all. I love coming here. Love being in the fellowship. Love the hospitality. And uh, we're just grateful, uh, you know, why Tony uh, to come and share uh, in fellowship with you uh, all uh, this morning. And so I'm a little bummed that I didn't get to do the well. I was all excited when Matt called me and said, hey, man, I want you to prison. Gonna be at the well. I don't think I've ever done open air preaching like that before. A long time ago, once a long time ago, when I was a young, more firebrand type preacher, corner street corner type people, I would do that. Uh, but you know, this is a different time, a different cadence, uh, in which I know Love Chapel Hill uh, preaches the gospel, preaches the word, uh, one uh, in love, and so uh, I love that. Uh, as a part of your mission, when you say your mission is your name, amen, uh, to love Chapel Hill. That is amazing. Amen. I'm always reminded of what true, what true spiritual growth is, and that is to grow in love. And so I just continue to pray, pray for us. We'll pray for you <coughs> as you continue to grow in that love, as you continue to grow uh, in the mission uh, that is love Chapel Hill here in this place. Amen. So we are in Easter, right? We're still in Easter. I, you know, um, I came up in a Pentecostal church, so I'm going to need a little f uh, a favor. I'm going to need, there's going to come a point in the sermon where I'm going to need some help, right? And so I come from the black preaching tradition, and so uh, that's just who I am. And so a part of that tradition, there's always like an amen or a clap back, you know, some kind of response to whatever I'm saying. Amen. Y'all good? Everybody good? We're in covenant with each other. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so, uh, so, so, uh, we are still in Easter. So coming up Pentecostal, uh, we didn't. We kind of majored on, you know, there was like Christmas and it was Easter. That was pretty much it, right? So I didn't grow up. In, I didn't grow up in a liturgical setting. And so one of the things I love about Love Chapel Hill is I don't know if you notice or not. But y'all go by the Christian calendar, <coughs> the liturgical year. And so as you may know, we are still in Easter. Did you know that? We are in what's called Easter Tide. Easter Tide is that time between uh, the resurrection and the time of Pentecost, which is 50 days. And so Christians literally have uh, 50 days of Easter. Just like we have 12 days of Christmas, there are 50 days of Easter. And so what we're reminded in this time period is that Easter is an ongoing reality. Amen. 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 Ongoing. I always tell folk, the kind of work that we do in our church back home in Salisbury, we do a lot of justice work. And so always, I'm always hanging around people that are radicals and activists, revolutionary type folk. They want to turn everything upside down. You know, they want to overturn the status quo. And when I'm in some of these circles, many of, them, many of them are not Christian. They always are curious, like, why are you here? Why is a Christian engaged in this kind of work of turning the world upside down? I say, well, you know, the interesting, the phrase itself comes from the Christian Bible. Read the book of Acts. When the apostles were going about doing their thing, Paul was doing his thing. They ended up in Athens at one point on one of Paul's missionary journeys. And they were like, the people were like, oh man, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And so always remind folk that Jesus is the greatest revolutionary that ever lived. 
Because you, you can name a whole bunch of revolutionaries in history that did work to try to change the world in which they lived, but we can find their burial space. One of the things that made Jesus so dangerous was the fact that uh, they killed him, but then he raised him the dead. Which ensured that his movement and his mission continues on in etern until he turned. Isn't it interesting? What does that mean? You can't stop this kind of love. Wow. Yes. Mm. You can't stop this kind of love. And so we are in Easter. We are celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus. We are celebrating the fact that God has brought victory over death through the life of uh, a death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the ascension, which is later on in the Christian story. Uh, but we are here because we are celebrating life's power, love's power over death. This is what resurrection, the deeper meaning of resurrection means. It means life has victory. <coughs> that, that Jesus lived an indestructible life that cannot be stopped by the power of evil, by the powers of, of, of oppression. Uh, by the powers of injustice, they could not stop this Jesus. And so, as I always tell our church and other places I've gone, you know, Christians, you know, it, it always, I was always uh, curious why Christians were just happy about the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. I was like, it's got to be more to it than that. It get, it's got to be more than just the fact that 2,000 years ago, uh, a Jewish uh, Palestinian peasant raised from the dead, and we just get happy about that. Right? And in my church tradition, you know, he rose in all power. And we get all excited and happy. We run around the church building and we get all happy, excited, and just feel the Holy Ghost and just excited about the, just the mere historical fact that he raised from the dead. But I always tell people it's not just that, it's what it means. What it means for our world. What it means for our lives. So I want to read to you this passage this morning. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And I'll be reading from the NIV uh, version. God bless your word today. Reading verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Notice that. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. <clears throat> a week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them though the doors were locked Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you then he said to Thomas put your finger here see my hands reach out your hand and put it into your side into my side stop doubting and believe Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. My God. 
You know, part of my own faith journey as a Christian has been uh, to move from heart to head. Um, I didn't really grow up in church. Um, matter of fact, by the time I was, I was about 12, 13 years old, I was silently atheist, which is odd, being raised in a black family in Birmingham, Alabama, in the South, because <laughs> all my, my grandparents, <clears throat> all my uncles, auntie and them, my cousins, they all went to church, except my parents. My mom and dad did not go to church. My mom uh, was a very analytical person. And as I recall at the time, she was, she was agnostic for what I can remember of my childhood. And my father, he just did his own thing. He didn't really have any kind of spirituality about him that I could see. And so my, my skepticism at an early age uh, was rooted in two things. One, it was rooted in my experience of growing up in the 80s in Birmingham, Alabama, where I saw a lot of gang violence and a lot of craziness. Uh, having my best friend killed by the time I was 14 years old due to gang violence. And also, secondarily, philosophically. I just can understand how people could believe that there's a good God with evil that persists in the world. And at the time, I didn't understand for those, any philosophy majors here. Got one philosophy major? Okay. So everybody remember David Hume's, uh, anybody to philosophy 101? Yeah. David Hume's uh, theodicy argument. Yeah. Right? If God is good, God is all-powerful, and evil persists, Yet evil, yet evil persists, God does nothing. They either mean God is not all-powerful or God is not all-good. <clears throat> Except my version was not as sophisticated as David Hume. It was a much cruder version of that. But I had a hard time philosophically understanding why anybody would believe in God, much less Christianity. I won't get deep into the cultural reasons why I wasn't a Christian. I will just say that. I remember as a kid growing up, seeing the Klan march with Bibles in their hands. And going to church and seeing, you know, certain images of Jesus in the church, I was like, uh, nah, I'm good. I'm not British. <laughs> so anyway, I get that background because there were, there were different reasons why I doubted or I did not believe. Christianity was seen so unattainable to me. I didn't understand it. Just basic run-of-the-mill theism. God did it, there's a God, creator. Didn't get it. Until, now mind you, by the time I was 12, 13 years old, my mom <coughs> would, would fill my room with books. And I'll never forget when I was around 12 or 13 years old, she gave me a copy of, like a summary, summary version of uh, the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. And she made sure, she made it her business to turn to that one frame, that one passage, that one line in, in Marx's book where he says, religion is the opiate of the masses. She made it a business. She, she, I remember she underlined it to let me know. Son, this is what our people are engaged in, opiate. So you got to understand, so by the time I'm, I'm, I'm you know, a young adult, I'm 17, 18, 19 years old, 
um, deeply enmeshed in this. And so to the point where when I was in the Navy, uh, all my friends, they would go to church on Sunday. And so I was like, they was like, Anthony, want you to go to church with us? Like, nah, I'm good, man. I don't need to go to do that kind of thing. I don't, I don't engage in fairy tales. I don't engage in illusions and things like that. I'll deal with reality. And so it used to be funny because, you know, if anybody's ever had any experience in the Navy, anybody ever been in the Navy before, you know, Navy guys and gals can be, they can party a little hard. And so they would party all weekend. And so I remember Sundays, <coughs> I would get the car because we all shared a car. I was saying, all right, I'll meet y'all out in the parking lot at the church. And then we're going to go do our thing. And so I never failed. Every Sunday, I, I drop the, my brother, my friend, my fellow sailors off at church. I meet them at the churches over, and I get in the car, or they'll get in the car, and I'll ask them, I was like, hey, so what fairy tales did you learn today? So I was like one of them Apostle Paul atheists. Right? I was one of the ones that would go after Christians. And unfortunately, I'll, some of them, I will call them, cause them to stumble. Drag them out of church. And so it was, it was funny. So some years later, uh, when I'm doing my thing and I end up in this little small Pentecostal church of all places that I would become a Christian, out of all the places I would become a Christian, a Pentecostal church of all places. And so you would think that I'd become a Christian kind of university, Christian university setting, where in these deep philosophical, theological conversations. But no, I met Jesus in the back of a, a volunteer firehouse in a room with 40, 50 people being filled with the spirit, being jubilant, running all over the place. And so I'll never forget, once, uh, January 2nd, 1994, here I am in the back row of this small, in the back of this Pentecostal church. And all I know is I went in there thinking that this is crazy, this is nonsense. And I remember that day leaving thinking, oh my God. <coughs> God. And I remember thinking, as I was sitting in that service, all I knew is abundant grace. I didn't have the terminology. I didn't think of it that way back then. All I knew is, when I reflect back, all I can remember is this abundant grace coming over me. And having a sense that this was real now. That I had been touched in some places that I had never been touched before in the depths of my soul. It's almost like one of them John Wesley moments. Heart strangely warm. And so I share that because uh, this is what's not happening here. <laughs> Oftentimes Thomas is often cast as a person who's just doubting. He needs scientific verifiable evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead. And so I can kind of, on the front end of this, we tend to cast Thomas in that light in this story. And I remember when I first became a Christian, all I knew is the risen Jesus resided in my life. I knew that the Holy Spirit resided in my life. And so my heart was, my heart was there, but my head had to catch up. And so part of my journey as a Christian has been to move from my heart to my head. I'm still a very analytical person. I'm still the kind of philosophical type of dude. 
but my heart is here. All the times I've tried to interrogate my belief, all the times I've tried to doubt what I believe, the Holy Spirit just, come on back, man. But this story here with Thomas is something of a different category. As we begin our text this morning, I want to focus in on Thomas. As we jump into uh, the word this morning, I want to, to pay attention to Thomas. Because something is, Thomas has something to teach us, I believe. The first thing I notice is about Thomas, because you know, Thomas is seen as the, 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 the dude that doubted, right? He, he wasn't there. And so, so now Thomas, in verse 24, it says, uh, now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Think about that for a moment. I got to set the scene for you a little bit. Now, Jesus was just crucified, or as I say where I'm from, he was assassinated by the Romans <coughs> because on one, lay, on one level, one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified because he was seen as leaving, leading a seditious movement against the, state, against the Roman Empire, right? So he was a political troublemaker, right? The troublemaker, right? We all agree with this, right? When Jesus started doing stuff, when he went in and shut the temple down, the folks were like, oh, we got to kill him, right? He started breaking some of these laws, started including people, started touching folk that you weren't supposed to touch, started being with people you weren't supposed to be with, and oh, we got to kill him. And so Jesus uh, leads a movement that is seen as seditious as troublemaking. And so, by extension, his followers are seen to be connected with him. Right? And so, if you know anything about movements, one of the things that when powers of evil, powers of oppression try to stop movements, they try to knock out the shepherds so the sheep are scattered, but then they try to knock out the inner circle. So you can imagine what, where the disciples are at this point. Right? They know Jesus was their leader, he was their lord, their rabbi, their, their, their king, and that he is, he has been crucified, he's been taken out by uh, the Romans. And so what are they doing? They're hiding for fear of their lives. They're hiding. Because why? They don't want to get arrested. Matter of fact, y'all remember the scene when Jesus uh, is, was arrested and Peter's hanging out outside. And, they, and Jesus told Peter early on, he said, man, you will deny me three times. And so when they come up to Peter, Peter's outside waiting to hear what's going to happen. And they say, hey, ain't you one of them Jesus people? Peter's like, uh, no, man. I ain't, I ain't one of them. Why? Because he was afraid that he would be arrested as well. So here they are. The scene is they're in this room locked up in fear for their safety. <coughs> but I want you to notice something. Thomas ain't with them. Thomas out and about. <laughs> Thomas was one of the ride or die type brothers. <laughs> Thomas got it. Matter of fact, early on in the gospel, when you read the gospel of John, around chapter 11, there's a scene where uh, Jesus gets in trouble because he raised Lazarus from the dead, right? 
And so they're about to go to this village, and there are people that are already conspiring to kill Jesus. And so Thomas is like, all right, Jesus, let's go on over there, because we know we're going to die. He's ready to die. <laughs> like, he's ready to go all in. He's ready to be a martyr for the movement. This is the kind of person Thomas is. Thomas ain't out. He ain't, he's not cloistered, hiding in the room, locked away in fear of the powers of the temple officials. He is about doing his thing, probably getting supplies, probably in the market buying stuff like, it is what it is. <laughs> if you want me, come get me. So because he's not locked into the room early on in the part of the week, he misses out when Jesus first shows up. So then what happens? <clears throat> so so he comes because he wasn't there. And they tell they tell Thomas, uh, we've seen the Lord. Thomas is like, oh, oh really? But the thing I, I found interesting is this, is that he doesn't say, Thomas doesn't have an issue just with just resurrection. He's like, yo, I want to see where they kill. I want to see where they done harm to his body. So for Thomas, it just wasn't, it wasn't just resurrection. It wasn't just the fact that he didn't believe that uh, Jesus raised from the dead. He probably he believed in resurrection because he saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. But he wanted to make sure that it was Jesus that was raised from the dead. He said, I want to see the marks on his body. I want to see the nails in his hands. I want to see the wounding in his side. Is if I can't see that, I will not believe. Then a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be unto you. I can imagine this scene. I always have this, uh, I wonder they were startled. You know, I was at this scene like, they probably chilling, eating some meal, eating a meal, and he just pops up. And then, and then he said to Thomas, uh, when he shows back up, he, it's almost that Jesus realizes what Thomas needs. Right? Um, he knows what Thomas' request was in the previous instance. Thomas' request was, unless I can touch the marks, if I can touch the wounds, right, then I'll know that it is Jesus. And so straightway, Jesus goes right to Thomas when he appears. He says, put your finger here, see? My hands, reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe, man. Then Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And so I, I was curious, like, what, what is going on here in this exchange between Thomas and Jesus? Because I really believe that Thomas was down for the revolution, that Thomas was down uh, for the cause and the mission of Jesus, so much so that he realized that he understood on a, on a fundamental level why Jesus was killed. And he, I think he also understood that what was behind his death, it was the, the arrogance of death and sin, the powers of sin and death. 
And so for, for Thomas to see that Jesus' wounds, which are woundings from sin and death themselves, manifest through Roman imperial force, it is he understands that if Jesus is alive with his wounds, that means that whatever wounded him is less powerful than the power that raised him. What am I saying? The powers that wounded Jesus, the world that wounded Jesus is less powerful than the power that raised him. How many of us have wounds? How many of us have been wounded psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, physically? I think Thomas' response when he says, my Lord and my God, it is a fundamental recognition that he is dealing with the power, uh, the power of the resurrection, that, that he's dealing with the risen Jesus whose actual resurrected state who is still wounded. That's one of the things that really brought home to me this reality about the resurrected Jesus. When Jesus raised from the dead, his wounds don't disappear. So as to say that whatever brought him to death has no longer has any more power over him in life. So Thomas then says, my Lord and my God, one of the things that I've always I struggled when I first became a Christian was my, my, my head catching up to my heart. And so I remember I went to a period, some of you may have gone through this period, some of you may be in this place, nothing wrong with this particular place, but I was like, okay, it makes sense here, but it don't make sense here. And so I began to read every single conceivable thing you can think of about history, around the historicity of Jesus. So I began, you know, the classic, you know, usually the first steps are usually you read Lee Strobel's Case of Christ. You read Josh McDowell's Evidence of Man's Averted. Amen. Right? Uh, then you start reading apologetics. You start reading traditional apologetics. You start reading presuppositional apologetics. <laughs> you start reading all kind of stuff. You start reading Thomas Aquinas. Right? You start reading all different things, teleological argument, cosmological argument, ontological argument. All these different things. I'm like, okay, this has got to make sense, God. It's got to make sense in my head. Until I came to the realization that what happens with Thomas is Jesus' invitation to him. Mm. <clears throat> See, it is abundant grace that comes in the form of an invitation that draws Thomas to see and to touch Jesus. Jesus has to extend the invitation first. He doesn't say, he doesn't show up with some graphs and crime scene type photos. He doesn't come up like hardcore evidence other than the fact that he's there. But the first thing that Jesus has to do is says, hey man, I want to invite you to see and to touch me. So it's the word of invitation that opens up Thomas's eyes. And one of the things about this passage that's interesting is, is that we don't see where Thomas actually touched, touched him. Jesus invites him to touch him. And what is Thomas's response 
my Lord and my God. Something erupted on the inside of him to recognize that he was in the presence of his Lord and his God. The wounded God. Mm. So he has that confession. So what do we learn here? Then Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That word believe there, I think it's deeper than just making some mental assertion that Jesus is alive or that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity or that uh, the Apostles' Creed, or whatever faith affirmations that you have towards Jesus, I think believe there is more than just I mentally assent to the idea that God exists. How many of you know that you can believe that God exists and not know God? You can mentally assent to the notion that there exists a, a first move mover, the one who made the universe, right? You can assent to the idea somebody must have made all this. Some being, some reality, dark matter, whatever, made all of this. But that's not Thomas's response. His response isn't, oh, wow, there must be a prime mover mover. There must be a cause for all these effects. No, he says what? My Lord. And my God, through abundant grace, he encounters the risen Jesus. So it's, it's moving from just belief in God, it is to believe in God, which is to lean into God. <laughs> to put one's confidence in the reality of God's presence and power and love in this world. A couple weeks ago, NASA, in uh, cooperation with some other agencies, uh, we would just reveal the first footage of a black hole. You heard about this? <laughs> right, first time we caught this on foot, this footage. Uh, uh, well, not footage, but more like a photo, right? I'm not sure what all they got, but it, it's very intriguing. And so if you know anything about black holes, right, like a nerd like myself, you know, I'm one of the ones that read those NASA reports. I'm one of those type of people. You realize that, that black holes are probably the most powerful physical phenomenon in the known universe. So much so, black holes are so powerful, y'all, they snatch light. I can't even I can't even conceive of that. That there's like this thing, this like a powerful vacuum cleaner. It just it sucks light. It literally bring it sucks light. Like if the black hole, well, if this black hole was in the room, we all wouldn't be here right now. But <laughs> imagine there's an imaginary barrier here. There's a black hole right here. Y'all can see through the barrier, right? And that light coming from this this light up here in the wall right here, literally is being sucked. The light being sucked into this vortex called a black hole. Why do I mention black holes? Because I believe that there's a power at work in the universe 
that is more powerful than black holes. That is more powerful than a physical phenomenon that sucks and bends light. I also believe that there's a power much more powerful than black holes that is way more powerful than sin. Sin, believe it or not, I think in the world, aside within the world, I think sin is probably the most powerful thing in the acts in the world apart from God. Because sin causes devastation. Sin causes oppression. Sin causes injustice. Sin causes, as C.S. Lewis says, it causes men to cave in on themselves. And so I believe that when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about a power that's greater than that sin, greater than that power, greater than just Jesus being God, creator in the flesh. More powerful than any other physical phenomenon in the, in the world, in the known world. In the world. So, so when this Jesus shows up, this Jesus is more powerful, more, more authoritative than our own categories of thought. What we think is real, what we think subsists of what we call knowledge, or what we think is what's true and what's false. God lies beyond, transcends of what we think is real. That's what a writer said a long time ago, Aquinas. He says, God is that, uh, which is Anselm, I think. He said, God is greater than that which we can conceive. So here's Thomas in the face and the presence of the, of the risen one. And he's encountered by this power that's greater than death now. That has won victory over death. How do you approach such a being? How do you approach such a presence? It's by invitation. So what am I saying, brothers and sisters? This is less about you having your own criterion of what you think it is that Jesus has to submit to. It's more about you listening to the invitation through the word of God, through the lives of the saints, through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit's witness. Pay attention to the invitation. Pay attention to the invitation. Because this Jesus will show up in places that you would never imagine. <clears throat> he show up in places where you've locked yourself into a room outside from the rest of the world, or the rest of the world outside. This Jesus will surprise us in places that we can never, that sometimes we can never uh, imagine the invitation being sent. But he says, because you have seen me you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believed. And that word seen there means deeper than just physically see. It means to have a perception, to have a perspective, to have some kind of understanding of what it is that you believe. So may, may we be like Thomas. May we be those who are blessed to believe, even though we may be unable to see in our lives, wherever we are. May we be those who understand that we are a part of this Easter revolution, that we are participating in what God is doing in this community, understanding that the resurrection power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, still works and operates through us, in us, and through us. 
and we get to join in that movement today on these streets, in schools, in our jobs, amongst our families, amongst our friends, and even amongst our enemies. Easter continues. Easter continues. Listen for the invitation. Listen for the beckoning of the Holy Spirit. In those moments when you don't believe, even when you don't believe, it, you ever have moments like that when you don't believe? Maybe y'all all believe all the time. And so, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've had dry seasons in my life when it's hard to believe. I've had moments in my life when my, my, my spirit was so dry, it was like God had left the building. But what I've learned is this is a part of the journey. The felt absence of God is a part of the presence of God. Because theologically we understand God cannot not be present at all. God is fully present everywhere. Matter of fact, Paul says that we live and move and have our being in God. God is everywhere. But there will be seasons when it doesn't feel that way. There'll be seasons when we do have doubts. There'll be seasons when we're overcome with disbelief. And what do you do in those seasons? I always tell people, it's actually a necessary part of the journey. Because just like Thomas had to deal with it, we got to deal with it. Thomas had to learn how to operate and connect with Jesus after resurrection. Because hmm. up to then, he was used to dealing with Jesus on the physical, in his earthly ministry. But when Jesus went through the resurrection, he had to deal with Jesus in a different, in a different manner. He had to experience Jesus in a different way, through the word, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Same with some of us. Some of us are in a season of transition. When the ways in which we experienced God before, or Jesus before, will have to shift sometimes. And so sometimes that requires you to go to the desert. Sometimes that means you got to go through some kind of desolation. What is God doing? God is breaking the old scaffolding. God is breaking the old foundations. Like what, what, what used to work before, it ain't working for some of us. So, Pastor, what do you do? I always tell people you gotta wait for the invitation. You'll know. You'll know. All I can say is, at the end of it, you'll be able to say this with Thomas, my Lord and my God, my God, my Lord. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. As a continuation with the, the message, the continuation of celebrating Easter, to lifting up Easter, one of the means of grace that we get to experience the risen Jesus is through communion. The great apostle Paul uh, talked about this. Uh, we're about to receive communion now, so I'm not sure how to. <laughs> <laughs> what we gotta do? 
Good. So, um, communion is one of the ways that Easter continues. Because one of the things I've learned is not only is communion remembering, remembering the life and death and uh, burial and resurrection of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus for sin, for all humanity, it's also a remembering that we are called to be the body of Jesus in the world. What does that mean? Communion also reminds us that we are called to be loved where there is none. To be the body in this world. So I'm just going to read the words of institution to you. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen, amen. We're going to form two lines. My wife, Tony, can come up. <clears throat>